Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church Mission Viejo Campus. Whether you're listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. Hey, um, I'm glad that you are with us. My name is Mike. Let's have a Christmas party today. You want to? Let's, let's. So there's, there's a Buddy the Elf costume that, as I'm looking at it, is a little, it looks a little too small. Just prepare yourselves. Um, I am glad that you are here. Uh, we, what we want to do um, is, uh, what am I saying? What do we want to do? I need to let you know a couple of things. Number one, um, we're going to start a new series today on uh, the book of Matthew. Uh, because Chris, uh, Christmas, can we agree, is our story? It's not, it's not Santa's story. It's not advertiser story. This is our story to tell. And so what we want to do is we want to start today and go all the way through Easter telling the story of Jesus the way Matthew tells the story of Jesus. Because it, it happens to be one story. Christmas and Easter are related. And so we're excited about that. Uh, second thing I want you to know is uh, this sermon is rated PG-13. I've tried to warn off as many parents as possible. We're going to look at a couple of things that are totally sketchy out of the Old Testament. And, and just reading the passage may cause some explaining to have to be done down the road. And so totally cool. I'll warn you when, when, and you'll know when we're there. You'll be going, oh my goodness, this is in the Bible. Oh yes. Oh yes. Uh, and so what we're going to do is um, we're going to spend some time this morning on a part of the Bible that just is often, often overlooked, and we're going to try to show, hey, there's stuff here that's everywhere, and it's for everybody, and so we're excited about that. So we're going to start in the book of Matthew, but we're going to, before we get there, go to the book of Genesis, just because we can. So let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Now, for those of you uh, that are new to the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. The first two chapters have to do with this God who creates everything out of nothing and declares it to be very good. The Bible starts with God creating universe and sky and land and birds and then human beings. He declares them to be very good. And chapter two ends with this kind of idyllic scene of them in the Garden of Eden. Chapter three begins... And all of a sudden we meet a serpent who is tempting this first couple into disobedience. And as they disobey, all of a sudden what was deemed good in the first two chapters now gets tainted and corrupted by the entrance of sin and death into everything. And Genesis 3 through Genesis 11 is this rippling effect of sin as it taints everything. But in Genesis 3, as God is speaking judgment against the serpent, God says something very interesting that we just want to focus on for a moment. Genesis 3, he's speaking to the serpent, verse 15. I will put animosity or enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So so God is speaking in plurals, right? So, So the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman, now there's going to be conflict between them. And then he speaks in a singular, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So God's speaking to the serpent, saying, there, there's now this battle that's going to rage over this world. Instead of shalom and peace, this world's now going to be governed by turmoil and strife. And there will come a he who will, who will deal a fatal blow against the serpent and all that the serpent represents. But you, serpent, will strike his heel. Now, Scholars universally understand this to be the very first hint 
we get of what Jesus Christ will do. That there is a he coming who will deal with the evil that infects the world. And though that evil will strike him, he will not be defeated by it, but instead will defeat it. Go, if you would, to Genesis chapter 12. As the, as the Old Testament progresses, we get more and more specific information about what this promised offspring of the woman will be like, who will come to deliver and to rescue. In Genesis 12, uh, we looked at this last week, if you were with us, the call of Abram. We meet this man, Abram, who we later know in the story is Abraham. And Abraham just kind of drops right in the middle of the story, and God says to this man, leave your country, verse 1, your people in your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. So Abraham is this dude, he's married to a wife who can't have kids, and God says, I'm going to turn your descendants into a great nation. I will bless them, whoever blesses you, I will bless, whoever curses you, I will curse and all of the people of the earth will be blessed through you. So, Genesis 3, someone from the offspring of, of uh, a woman, so uh, somebody who's human. Genesis 12, somebody will come from this nation that's formed out of Abraham. Somebody will come, and through that, somebody will be a blessing to the whole world. Go, if you would, to the book, uh, or stay in the book of Genesis, go to chapter 49. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob is renamed Israel and has 12 sons who end up becoming the 12 tribes of Israel. And Israel becomes this nation that God spoke to Abraham about. One of the things you would do as a patriarch in that society is on your deathbed, you would speak a blessing over your children. And part of that blessing, in Jacob's case, is he's blessing each of his 12 sons. He's actually forecasting the destiny of each of these tribes. So it's not just speaking, hey, I'm really proud of you and I love you. He's actually forecasting what each God will do with each tribe down the road. And he says something very interesting to Judah. Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff, from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. Now these statements are so weird. It's like, can you say that more clearly, please? The idea is from Judah's descendants will come a, a, a line of kings. Scepters and royal staffs were like symbols of power and authority. And that line of kings will lead to somebody in whom the fulfillment of that royal line is completed. In other words, you'll have this line of kings, and then the scepter and the royal staff will come to the one for whom it was intended. In other words, all the kings leading up were pointing to this ultimate king. All right, you're tracking with me on that one. Right, it's, this is a little confusing, and if you're wondering how it's going to help make your life better, just you wait. Okay, so Genesis 3... All right, from the offspring of Eve will come a he who will deal a blow against the serpent. Genesis 12, from the offspring of Abraham will come one who will be a blessing to the, to the nations. Genesis 49, from the offspring of Judah. It gets more and more specific. So you've got all of humanity here. Then you've got tribe of you know, Israel here. 
And then from the, from the specific tribe of Judah, who was a part of Israel, who was a part of humanity. You with me? It gets more and more focused as you go. So from Judah will come a line of kings. Now, go, if you would, um, to 2 Samuel. So God delivers Israel out of slavery. He forms them into a nation. They reject God as their king, and they want a human king just like all the other nations. right? So if you're junior higher saying, hey, well, everyone else does it, understand they get that from the people of Israel. right? Because that's what they were saying. We don't want we God... We'd like to see you. We'd kind of like a tangible king just like everybody else. To which God should have said, well, if you jumped off a bridge would, and everyone else were jumping off a bridge, would you do that too? He didn't play that line. Instead, he gave them a, an earthly king, Saul. And Saul was a bit of a failure. Saul is replaced by a guy named David. And David is the prototype king of the Old Testament. David is a man after God's own heart, the scriptures say. And David wants more than anything else to build a temple that declares God's permanent residence among Israel. Up until then, they'd been traveling around in this mobile tent sanctuary called a tabernacle, and David says, I want to build a house for your name. God responds saying, well, the problem is you've waged war your whole life, and your hands are bloody. And then he does this flip where he says, David says to God, I want to build you a house. God flips it around and says, no, 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 I'm going to build you a house, David. And notice what he says. I'm in Leviticus 13. I need to be in 2 Samuel. I guess I got sidetracked along the way. 2 Samuel, back to the left. 2 Samuel 7. Second Samuel, right before 1 Samuel, or right after 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. Duh. There we go, 2 Samuel 7. What a build-up uh, to this passage. This is God speaking to David. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. So David's been saying, I want to build a house for you. And God says, no, no, I'm going to establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. That is King Solomon that we read about later who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. Solomon is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, this promise runs headlong into the reality of the nation of Israel during Solomon's reign. So David gives uh, birth to Solomon I mean, he contributes to the birthing process. Solomon shows up, and for the first part of his life, Solomon is perfectly obedient, and God gives him great favor. The second part of Solomon's life, he's disobedient, his heart wanders, and God says, as a result of your disobedience, there will now be civil war. The kingdom will be split between two of Solomon's sons. So there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and they fight with each other. And it's a pretty dark period in Israel's history. And what happens is there is this perpetual disobedience in both of these kingdoms. And so the northern kingdom gets sent into exile, scattered all throughout the ancient Near East. And then about 150, 160 years later, the southern kingdom gets exiled too. But some of them come back 70 years later. They try to rebuild Israel to her former former glory. But the problem is the Jews are now scattered everywhere. 
And the question that everybody asks is when will God provide a king who will sit on the throne of David? The Jews took this promise as a promise that God would rule his people through somebody who sat on David's throne. Because God had promised David's line would be established as a kingly line forever. Are you following this train of thought? So, Genesis 3, the seed of uh, of the offspring of a woman. Genesis 12, from the line of Abraham, the line of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, and now from the kingly line of David. All right, though that... There are like 60 of these prophecies and 200 implications that end up being kind of uh, unpacked as you go through the Old Testament. But what I want you to see is that the Jews of Jesus' day, before Jesus ever showed up, had been waiting 400 years. God had been silent. No revelation had been given. And they're sitting there asking, God, when will you send someone to to sit on the throne of David? They waited for this promised coming king. Now go, if you would, to the book of Matthew. Bless you. Matthew chapter 1. All of that background, painful though it was, was necessary to understand the first sentence in Matthew's gospel. Okay, Matthew is Jewish. And I don't know if you know this, there are four biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're all written to different audiences. Matthew's writing to Jewish folks. So, and, and Matthew was Jewish. The interesting twist on Matthew is that Matthew, in his, before he was a disciple of Jesus, was a tax collector. So he was somebody who, out of greed and corruption, collected taxes from other Jewish folks on behalf of the Roman army and took a cut for himself. So on the rung of hated people, Right? The Jews hated they were oppressed by a foreign power, but the only people they hated more than their foreign oppressors were the Jews that helped their foreign oppressor, oppressors oppress them. And that's what Matthew was. So Matthew is a Jewish man writing to other Jewish folks with a clear agenda to show Jesus is the promised Messiah. And how's this for an opening sentence? Matthew 1, verse 1. A record of the genealogy of of Jesus Christ. Now, a couple of things. First off, the word for genealogy is the word Genesis. So, literally, if you're Jewish and you hear the word Genesis, it is, the first sentence reads, the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're Jewish, you hear the word Genesis, what are you thinking of? Genesis, right? The story of creation. So when that word is used, there's this real subtle flavoring of Oh, this is, a, this is kind of a recreation story. It's subtle, you don't pick it up in English, but in the original language you'd go, oh, the genesis of Jesus Christ. And by the way, Christ isn't Jesus' last name. Do you, you know this, correct? Right? His name was not, he was Jesus bar Joseph, all right, back in the day. He was not, Christ was a title that meant anointed one, or king, or rescuer, or savior. So, Matthew starts by saying, the genesis of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, and notice the descriptors he adds, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, we could have read that like 15 minutes ago, and it would have been like, oh, okay, great. 
But we spent some time in the, in the Old Testament to say those two phrases were unbelievably electric in the first century. God hadn't been speaking for 400 years, and now Matthew leads. The genesis of Jesus Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. In other words, all of the epic promises in the Old Testament about this coming Redeemer are being fulfilled before your eyes. That's one sentence. He could not have used more electric language to his contemporaries. The genesis of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. The one that God spoke about who would sit on the throne of David forever, he's the one. The one that God promised to Abraham would be a blessing to the nations, he's the one. And now... What Matthew's going to do is because bloodline mattered, he had to be human, you know, from Eve, he had to be from Abraham, he had to be from Judah, he had to be from David, whatever the Messiah was. Now, Matthew is going to record for us a lineage, a resume. This is how you do it in the first century. He's going to say, okay, here's the, here's the lineage of this Jesus. And what I want you to see is the crazy juxtaposition between the epic titles given to Jesus, and the examples that are pulled in the genealogy. Because you'd think, after an opening sentence like, the genesis of Jesus, Messiah of the world, son of David, son of Abraham, now you expect this epic list of all of this incredible, like, this is the resume, this is your Jesus, this is the one you've hoped in. And instead what we get is this crazy list of names that most of us just skip over so on the one hand you have this epic like he's the fulfillment of everything and on the other hand you go really this is how it's fulfilled verse two abraham was the father of isaac isaac the father of jacob jacob the father of judah and his brothers judah the father of perez and zerah whose mother was tamar now in Jewish culture, this wasn't from the Bible, this was just a, a patriarchal culture. In Jewish culture, women were not named in genealogies. Who cares about the women, they would think. Women weren't fit to testify in courts of law. They weren't smart enough to be theologically trained. If you're building a resume of the genesis of Jesus Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham, you do not mention women. We have records of Jewish men who would walk around thanking God that they weren't born women. It's a strike against the resume that you would include a woman, Tamar. I mean, that's, and by the way, just as a parenthetical comment, who were the first people to see that Jesus had risen from the dead? Women. If you're making up a religion to try to convince fellow Jews that the, he's the fulfillment, this Messiah is the You don't have women be the first eyewitnesses who then go tell the men who are hiding. Like, that's not how you roll this thing out. All right, so we got this, this person named Tamar. Perez is the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nishon, Nishon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Okay, that's woman number two. Matthew must have an agenda because we don't have records of genealogies that include women. 
Not Jewish genealogies and not from the first century. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Does that sound like another woman to you? Now, the dudes that are being listed, a lot of these guys are just complete losers. But the fact that women were named is what makes this so exceptional. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Does that sound like a woman to you? Okay, so we're like one section in, and we've got four women listed. Now, you and I know women are totally equal, unbelievably uh, gifted. I mean, that whole thing, you and I know. Back then, this would have been a huge deal. I have to, you have to see the genealogy, the genesis of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. And you're expecting this killer resume. And then Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Bathsheba isn't even mentioned by name because she was the one that had an affair with King David, and King David was so exalted in Jewish culture. She, she was she who must not be named, evidently, right? For those of you, if you don't know what that's in reference to, it's out of The Hobbit. Um, <laughs> so here's what I want to do, all right? This, would you agree this is a painful part of the Bible? Oh, be honest. None of you sit and read this and go, yes, I see how this helps me get married. <laughs> what I want to do is Matthew has an agenda, and I want to discern that agenda. Now, here comes the PG-13 part. Are you ready? Go back to Genesis 38. Okay, I've warned you. I'm just going to roll. I'm just going to roll. I'm rolling. If you haven't had the talk yet, maybe you will after this. Genesis 38. Now, Jacob has 12 sons. He's renamed Israel. Judah is one of those sons. And there was a law. This is where it starts getting wacky. There was a law in Israel. Bloodlines mattered, okay? So if, if a, a woman was married to a, a son, and um, a son of a different family and the son ends up dying. If that son had brothers, the brothers were required to sleep with the widow so that she could get pregnant and have children who would be considered the dead brother's offspring and carry on his bloodline. You with me on this? Meaning, this makes me uncomfortable, but I understand what you're saying, okay? Are you with me on this? Yes, now... This was a command given in the Bible because bloodlines were huge. Social security didn't exist. It actually protected the woman in incredible ways. Instead of being set aside, now she had children to care for her uh, when she was older. It was a really big deal, and it was revolutionary for its day. It, it seems really weird to us. But back then, that was the deal. Judah, we read about, has three sons. So, verse 6, Genesis 38. Judah got a wife for Ur. His firstborn, I think it's pronounced Er, but Er sounds more like pirate. <laughs> Judah got a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar, the same Tamar we just read about. But Er 
Judas firstborn was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Ouch. <laughs> now, the second son is named Onan. And Onan, his responsibility was to have relations with Tamar to have children in Ur's line, okay, was the idea. Judas said to Onan, lie with your brother's wife, and we know what lie is in reference to, right? We understand the euphemism here. Lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so God put him to death also. Now, Judah has another son. Judah thinks to himself, I'm 0 for 2. And he doesn't consider that the problem was his sons. Of course, who's he going to blame? Her. Right, ladies? Is this, does this stuff happen today, you think, maybe? So, not like this, thankfully. Um, but this sort of double standard. So Judah says to her, he says, uh, said to his daughter-in-law, verse 11, live as a widow in your father's house until my third son grows up. For he thought to himself, he might die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her, in her father's house. Now, under biblical law, Judah had to marry Tamar to now the third son, right? But he refused to do it because he was freaked out that maybe the third son would die too. So after a period of time, Tamar is over at her family's and she's realizing, hey, the son's grown up now, he's of age, and Judah isn't going to have us married. She's on her own. She's totally going to be destitute then. Because a, a widow was the most vulnerable in Israelite society, oh, the kind of person that was most vulnerable. And so here's what she does. She dresses up as a prostitute. While Judah is away on a business trip, on the side of the road, she seduces him. He has no idea it's her because she's wearing a veil. Uh, and after uh, they have relations, um, he says, what do I owe you? She says, a goat. He says, I don't have one on me. And so, <laughs> can I promise to bring you a goat later? And she says, absolutely, but what surety will you give me of, of payment? So he gives her three identifiable markers of his identity to her as promise that he'll pay. She goes back to her parents' place and ends up pregnant. He goes back, he gets a goat, he comes back, he can't find her. He didn't know it was her, of course, but he can't find whoever it was that he'd slept with. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Now, who is also guilty of prostitution? Judah. But what does Judah say? Bring her out and have her burned to death. Oh my goodness. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. And she gives him the three things he had given her to establish that he would pay. 
Judah says, Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. (laughs) Yeah? When the time came for her to give birth, there were two boys in her womb. The first one was Perez. The second one was Zerah. And the line of the Messiah goes through Tamar. If you are building a resume, the genesis of Jesus the Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, and you don't have to mention Tamar, but you do anyway, do you have an agenda? Absolutely you have an agenda. Go if you would to the book of Joshua. All right, that was the worst of it. Let's go to the book of Joshua. (laughs) Go to Joshua chapter 2. Now, what God has done is he's delivered the nation of Israel out of slavery, and he takes them to the promised land. The first generation of Israelites didn't trust that God would fight for them, so they end up not wanting to go into the promised land. God says, well, great, you'll get your wish. So he walks them around for 40 years. Then he takes the second generation back, and they're standing on the cusp of the promised land. God says to Joshua, the leader, send some spies in to check it out. Particularly pay attention to this place called Jericho. Jericho was a fortified city, and it was, it's literally in human history one of the oldest places where humans have occupied since the beginning of, of recorded history. Jericho has been occupied. So it was a big, walled, fortified city. So these spies go in. Joshua chapter 2, second part of verse 1. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Okay, now evidently that's a good place for spies to go because like people are coming in and out of that thing all hours of the night. The king of Jericho hears about this and says, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they've come to spy out your whole land. Rahab, her, de- her life is actually in danger now because she's hiding these spies. And what she does, instead of turning the spies over, is she lies to the king and says, hey, they were, they were here, I didn't know they were spies, they left. Verse 8, she goes up to meet them before they lay down for the night, and she says to them, I know that the Lord, this is God's name in the Old Testament, is Yahweh, I know that Yahweh has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear. And then she goes on to say, we've heard about the mighty deeds your God has done. And she says, since I have hidden you, when you come back, would you spare my life and the life of my family? They say yes. And the line of the Messiah goes through a prostitute named Rahab. If you're building a resume for Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you lead with Tamar and Rahab. Do you have an agenda? Go, if you would, to the book of Ruth. Flip over several books. Ruth, see if you can follow this as I hustle. Dude named Elimelech. Elimelech married to Naomi. They have two sons. 
there is famine in the land of Israel. And so Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons go to a neighboring city called, a neighboring country called Moab. The number one rule when you have two sons is that the sons were not to marry foreign women because bloodlines mattered. But what do they do? They marry foreign women. Ten years go by. Elimelech the dad dies and the two sons die. So that all that's left of this family is Naomi the mom and two daughters-in-law. One daughter-in-law is named Ruth. Ruth is a foreigner. Naomi says to these two daughters-in-law, hey, since my boys have died, there's no reason for you to come back with me when I go back to my homeland in Israel. No reason for you. Go back to your families. Maybe you can get married to somebody else. One of the daughters-in-law does that, and, the, and Ruth says one of the most like, incredible faith statements in all the Bible. Verse 16 of Ruth chapter 1. So Naomi said, go back to your families. Ruth replies, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And Ruth, the whole book is the story of how this foreigner comes with Naomi back to Israel, serves Naomi through the process of gathering leftover stuff at harvest. She meets this dude named Boaz, who is very distantly related to Naomi. And Boaz sees their plight and ends up marrying Ruth as something called a kinsman redeemer, which is this picture of what Jesus will do down the road. And the book of Ruth, that, that's the plot of the book of Ruth, about how an outsider... You have to understand, to the Jews, they were the chosen people. They were the faithful ones. They were the light to the nations. And here is, in the middle of the Old Testament, is this book about a foreign woman whom God shows great favor towards. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. Ruth ends up marrying this dude named Boaz. Do you know who Boaz's mom was? Rahab. In other words, why would Boaz have such compassion towards an outsider? Because that's what his mom was. A prostitute in a foreign land who heard about Israel's God. So is it any coincidence that when he meets a woman from a foreign land who has faith in Israel's God, he gives her nothing but compassion? And then I don't, we don't even have to like turn to the story of Bathsheba, right? You guys know this from... Um, the books of Samuel. David is king. One night he sends out his army. He was supposed to lead them, but instead he stays behind. One night he's out on the roof. He sees a woman bathing. Her name is Bathsheba. Bathing and Bathsheba. Do you see? There's no coincidence here. I know. I'm sorry. She's very fine. He says... Well, my army's not here. I'm kind of bored. So he invites her over. She spends the night. She ends up getting pregnant. Now, the problem is she's married to somebody else. So, and the somebody else, his name was Uriah, and he was serving in David's army. So David, man of God that he was, calls Uriah back from the front lines, and he says, hey, I just wanted to give you a break. Why don't you go visit your wife? Hoping that he would sleep with her and... They would think the child was Uriah's. 
but Uriah is faithful and says, no way. And in fact, sleeps at the front of the palace because like, he's not going to go do that while his comrades are at war. So the next night, David gets him drunk. I mean, this is in the Bible. David gets him drunk and says, hey, go visit your wife. Nope, he doesn't do it. So he actually orders Uriah to be placed at the front of the next battle where he's killed. Bathsheba, the, the, the son they were going to have out of that union, uh, dies. But David and Bathsheba end up getting married and they produce Solomon. And the line of the Messiah goes through Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. Go to Matthew chapter 1. Does Matthew have an agenda? Oh, I think he does. Not only that he named women in this genealogy, but who he named. The dudes were losers. All right, we could tell all of their stories, but what was so exceptional is that women were named. And not just any women. The incestuous Tamar, right? The adulterous Bathsheba, the outsider Ruth, and the prostitute Rahab. If you're building a resume to a Jewish audience for the genesis of Jesus the Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, is this what you lead with? No! Now, isn't it interesting that of all the things you could say right out of the gate of the book of Matthew, this is what's included. A genealogy, that was common. A genealogy including women, uncommon. A genealogy including women that didn't fit into the gentle, quiet, spirit, faithful kind of woman ideal of the Old Testament, that was staggering. So Matthew is an outsider writes his genealogy in such a way so that everybody would know that God can use anyone and anything to fulfill his promises. We sit here 2,000 years later with our own pasts, our own mistakes, our own failures, thinking we've been disqualified thinking we're not usable, thinking we've been crippled along the way. And that's the story we're given. The first thing we're told about Jesus of Nazareth is that God kept his promise to Abraham, to David, by using anybody. Luke says in his account of the Christmas story that an angel appears to some shepherds and announces that the birth of Jesus is good news of great joy. And then he adds this line, that will be for all the people. You have to understand why he had to add that line. The word good news was a word that was used by Caesar to announce victory. The word good news was a word used by Caesar to announce his birth date. The good news was a word used by Caesar to announce another conquest. Good news was never good news for prostitutes. Good news was never good news for shepherds. Good news was never good news for outcasts and misfits and the broken. And so Luke adds, it's good news of great joy 
for all the people. But then Matthew shows us why it was for everybody. When we want to brag about Jesus to the world, what does American Christianity highlight? Look at our athletes. Look at our Hollywood stars. Look at our celebrities. Look at our strong, our beautiful, our smart, our bright. You can, you can follow Jesus. You can still be cool. Look at this. When Jesus brags about Jesus and inspires Matthew to write down a genealogy, who does Matthew brag about? Ruth, Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba. American Christianity says, hey, look, you can be cool and powerful and sweet and still follow Jesus. If Jesus were here and he were at like a big rally, I wonder who the big success stories Jesus would like trumpet before us. Hey, here's a serial alcoholic who after every binge crawls before God in ruthless honesty, confesses a sin, proclaims his faith in Christ and receives forgiveness every single time. Here's somebody who's had multiple affairs, multiple abortions, somebody who's screwed up as a stain on the family's honor, and after every single screw-up, comes crawling back in repentance and confession and is forgiven every single time. Or here's an atheist who lived his life ruthlessly against God until the last possible second when on his deathbed, he makes a confession of faith. And Jesus says, yep, today you'll be with me in paradise. Who does American Christianity show off? And who does Jesus show off? The best possible news of the Christmas story is that God fulfills his promises using the most unlikely people imaginable. The good news of the Christmas story is that there's room for us in it. And do you know how thankful I am to hear that? Do you know what a colossal failure and screw up I am? I hate sometimes standing up here because I, the temptation is for me to like pretend I've got it together, but I know my heart too well. I know the darkness in it. And every single time God reminds me, yeah, I can use you, and I can use anybody. It's not about the track record. It's about whether or not your heart's open to me. And so we come with a past, a present, or a perceived future that we think disqualifies us. We come with a whole list of reasons why we're not good enough or not worthy enough. And in these few verses that we would normally skip over, Matthew astounds us with the genesis of Jesus the Christ, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, the fulfillment of the promise to David. And look at how he fulfills those promises. Like, only God can pull that off. Any human religion can highlight the best and the brightest as the work. Only Jesus of Nazareth boasts and what he can do with failures and misfits. So we're going to celebrate communion this morning together.
we felt like it is the perfect response to the best news that we celebrate this morning. So um, here's what we're going to do. We are going to have little trays uh, that the ushers will pass down each row. One of the trays will have bread. Take some bread. One of them will have a little cup of juice. Take the juice. Will you eat them before everybody else? No, you will not. You will hold them and wait for the rest of us to join you. If you are new to church or Jesus and you're uncomfortable doing this, let it go right on by. There aren't, there aren't people at the ends of the row counting cups to see how many were taken. We also recognize that um, I never know who's here, and there may be a few of you for whom this is incredibly good news. And our invitation is that you would, you would put your faith in Jesus, just straight up that you would say yes to him and join this story being written of God's work in human history. And all you have to do is say yes, pray to him and invite him to invade your life and then take some bread and take a cup and receive uh, the grace that that represents. So let me pray for us. And the ushers are going to come down and pass this out. Lord Jesus, I pray by the power of your spirit and the authority of your name that you would allow this to sink in. God, that there... There are a few of us who believe we've fallen too far, we've sinned too much. We're we're too far away for you to save. And we just read these words of Matthew and are reminded that that is so not true. And so Lord, would your grace be present in a very powerful way as we remember the body and the blood of your son. And we, in in just a strange way, celebrate his death because that death bought us life. And so would you receive this worship, Lord? Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariners Church Mission Viejo Campus. For more information about Mariners, visit www.marinerschurch.org.